Hello, welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast. We've had a few weeks of regular action across Europe to sink our teeth into now, and it has not disappointed, I think that's uh, fair to say. Um, Europe's top five leagues are back, and so are the best of the rest, uh, the Belgians, Netherlands, Austrias, Norways, and Denmarks, and, and all the others. Today, for our podcast episode, I have author, professional scout, uh, analyst, and, and regular scouted contributor, Lee Scott, with me. Um, Lee has extensive expertise in the world of football, scouting for clubs, analysing the champions of England for his books, which we'll get onto shortly, and sharing much of his insight on Twitter, uh, where his at is at FM Analysis. Um, Lee, welcome to the podcast, uh, about nine months after we originally intended to, but it's great to eventually get down to business. How are things with you? They're all good, thank you, Joe. Thanks very much for having me on and for being with me. Obviously, it didn't quite work out last time, but I'm really happy to be here this morning. Excellent. No, no, it's it's great to it's great to hear to to actually have you have you now because I know you you've got quite a, a busy schedule. Um, so it's it's great to 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 get you to give up some of your time for us. But yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'd just like to to start by introducing your you know your credentials within the game. Um, you've done some professional scouting. Um, uh, in what capacity has that been, and, and you know who have you who have you worked for? The, in the first instance, I worked as a first-team scout in the recruitment department for Hibernian up in Scotland. Um, that was very much tied to uh, a chief scout, a scout called Martin Christie. When Martin then moved to take over the, the recruitment department at St Mirren, I moved with him to do opposition analysis and first-team scouting there. And then again, Martin then moved after Jack Ross had moved on from St Mirren to Sunderland. There was a little bit of a, a crossover, and then Martin moved to Park Thistle. So, again, I moved with him to do first-team recruitment and opposition analysis there a little bit. Um, after that, kind of came away from the game a little bit. There's been bits and pieces. Um, I've been approached and discussed things with different clubs, but nothing's ever quite come off, and that, that tends to be the way within football, to be honest with you. Um, so, at the moment, with Total Football Analysis, we're doing a lot of consulting work. So, we're still working with clubs, working with agents, working with players even, um, just to provide analysis there, so so that's keeping me busy at the moment. Yeah, you mentioned so you know you're quite heavily involved with with TFA Total Football Analysis, um, and and obviously doing some some consulting for clubs and stuff. Um, how have you found that as sort of a, a switch from from doing the actual professional side of things? It's it's a very different way of working, if you like. When you you're involved with a club, everything is full on and you're aware of the, the workflow, if you like, whereas with the consultancy side, you can literally get different things dropped on your desk at a minute's notice. So one day you might be profiling left-footed centre-backs because there's a, an agency who wants to, to identify the next great left-footed centre-back, if you like. The next minute you're looking at how to place a player at a certain club, and then after that you're doing a report for a Champions League club, looking at right-footed wingers. It's, it's, it's all very varied and very different, but it's an interesting way of doing it because it gives you an insight into different ways that different clubs think and then you can kind of there are common threads if you like in, in what they like so a, a little a little piece is something that I never ever as a somebody who did a lot of analysis of football I never really considered things like player height but what I found is that every mm. single club that I've worked with are very very keen to know a player's height very early on in a report it's not something that, that as fans or as people watching the game we pay a lot of attention to but Little details like that seem to be a common thread through everything. There's, there's several things like that, so it's quite fascinating. Um, people may also recognise your name from from the books you've written, though. Um, and there is, of, of course, mastering the Premier League, uh, the tactical concepts behind Pep Guardiola's Manchester City, and the most recent um, King Klopp rebuilding the Liverpool dynasty. 
What What's it like writing a football book, particularly something that can be as all-consuming as tactics writing can be? Yeah, it's a, it was an experience I never thought I would have. I, I never thought that I would ever write a book, despite all the writing that I've done over the years. <clears throat> it kind of came about because I was looking for a book about the tactical concepts that Pep Guardiola uses, whether at Manchester City, Barcelona, or Bayern Munich. But there wasn't really anything out there. There are books that'll that'll claim to tell you how he coaches and his training sessions and things like that. There might be elements of truth to that, but not fully, if you like. So, mm-hmm. because there wasn't a book there that did this, I just thought, well, why don't I write it myself? So, kind of fired away a couple of emails to a publisher, and then it was taken on straight away. And then suddenly I've got a deadline, and suddenly I have to I have to write a book. But I, I honestly never ever thought that would happen. Um, I think the most surreal moment was when I actually went into uh, a bookstore in town and I was able to see a physical copy of it on the shelf. And, and that was the moment when it really sunk in that, that it happened and I'd written a book. And then obviously I swore that I would never do one again because it's quite a stressful, <laughs> quite a stressful process. And then all of a sudden I'm writing a second book and I swore I'd never do it again. And now I'm planning a third book for release next year. So, so yeah, I must just be, be a glutton for punishment somewhere along the line. <laughs> You've caught the bug. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. That's what it is. You've caught the bug for for, for writing the long form analysis in in book format. Never mind, um, just tactical pieces. Um, I think I think most people will be able to grasp what the content will be just from the titles of those books and what you just mentioned. But I suppose give us what essentially what the essence of both books um it is. Well, what I wanted to do, what I've always wanted to do with my writing was to not simplify these tactical concepts that we talk about, but make it more accessible for people. I think a lot of the time, people who write about tactics get criticised, if you like, because it's almost like you're trying to create new terminology, create new new words, if you like, for different things. And that, that can be the case at times, and I understand why it is and why some of it's more complicated. But I wanted to almost simplify that so that anybody with an interest in tactics would be able to pick up the book and, and get something from it, but at different levels. So if you've got a more advanced understanding of tactics and you like those those um, those more complicated websites or blogs or, or anything like that that describe tactics in a very specific, complicated way, I would hope that you can still take things from my books. But I also hope that the person who just wants to talk a little bit about tactics down the top of his friends would be able to pick it up and get something as well. So it was just really about finding a balance between the two for me. Yeah, I'm definitely sure that'll that'll be right up plenty of people's streets. And, and you know, it's two topics that I feel people are very familiar with, but on that superficial level, you know, the, but I suppose the real information and, and behind the scenes nuggets can, you know, can be found in these books. But in a way, as you say, you know, that isn't on that pseudo intellectual level that a lot of people may be put off by when it comes to, to football tactics. Um, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here ever so slightly, but which was more fun to write, Liverpool or Manchester City? I think Manchester City was more fun to write for me purely. I think that I identify more with the way that Pep Guardiola plays the game. And there are similarities between the two, between Guardiola and Klopp. There are similarities that that maybe haven't always been evident throughout their coaching careers, but I think that Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp have adapted slightly to um, to almost incorporate some of the same concepts that Pep Guardiola likes to use at Manchester City. So I, I really enjoyed breaking down Man City. Um, that was that was something that was really interesting to me. But that's not to say I didn't enjoy watching Liverpool last time. I think that, that Liverpool last year were 
were one of the most dominant Premier League teams that we've seen for a long time, but without ever... The, the interesting thing about Liverpool last year is there was a lot of talk about the underlying statistics, that the advanced statistics, if you looked at XG and XGA and expected points and all these things, and everything pointed to the fact that Manchester City should be well ahead in the league title race. But because of the fact that Manchester City were so profligate from goal at times, they, they struggled, they conceded silly goals, but they shouldn't have conceded silly goals, whereas Liverpool were were dominant in terms of winning when they perhaps weren't playing well, which is that old stereotype about to win the league, you have to win when you're not playing well. And I think that that was one of the most interesting aspects of the Premier League for me last season was that kind of duality between the two things at the same time. And I think that, for me, Manchester City were more fascinating to break down, but Liverpool were interesting because of the way that they were able to keep winning despite things perhaps not always going in their favour. Well, you've pulled it round there. I think you may not have lost the entirety of the Liverpool listenership uh, <laughs> in, in, that, in that little segment. But um, moving on to today's episode, um, Lee, given your expertise in, in the field of scouting, I know there are very few corners of European football that your Scout account hasn't touched. Um, and so we, we were discussing this in terms of planning this episode and, and we thought, you know, three leagues, four players from each. Um, that's a good little format. Let's discuss them, assess their styles, ceilings, forecasts, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, they're all top divisions in their respective countries. Uh, and we've gone for the, the Belgian Pro League, uh, the Danish Superliga and the Dutch Eredivisie. Three leagues which consistently produce really intriguing players who tend to be bought by the clubs in the top five leagues eventually. Um, Lee, if it's all right with you, I think we'll begin with Denmark. And I think it's fair to say that out of the three, it might be the weakest of them all. Um, but first on the list certainly isn't a, a weak player. Um, we have uh, Mohamed Durami, a player who we recently profiled on our site, um, thanks to, to Josh Hobbs, who penned a brilliant piece with a huge amount of detail into his game and plenty of tactical insights. Um, but Lee, from, from your side, you know, tell us about Mo Durami. Who is he? He's a really fascinating player. First of all, that piece by, by Josh is excellent on the website. I've worked with Josh and he really is top class. He's, he's a great analyst and somebody who has a great insight into the game. So I would encourage anybody who's listening, maybe just pause now and go and read that before we start talking because there might be some insights in there that I'm not going to touch upon and we're not going to touch upon, Joe. But I think Modarami is one of the most interesting players in Denmark at the moment. You're, you're right that the Danish league is perhaps not the, the strongest, but it is a, a league where there's a lot of good player development and there's good player pathways that where young players get good first-team minutes, which is an essential in their player development. And I think that that's, that's very much the case with Dorami, who plays for Copenhagen in Denmark. He's, he's got say, his heritage, I think, is from Sierra Leone, but he's already said in, in recent months, I think, that he's going to play for Denmark. He's applied for full, full Danish citizenship and he is going to play for Denmark going forward. So that question's kind of taken away. And he's, uh, he's the youngest ever goal scorer for Copenhagen, even though he doesn't perhaps always play as a knight. He's an attacking player who can play on the left, on the right, or he can, as many people think he will, eventually play as the nine through the middle. Personally, I prefer him as the left-sided attacker. I think he has got a similar profile to Sadio Mane when, when he was first coming through and, and now at Liverpool, in that when you play him from the left-hand side, he's got that ability to, to make incisive runs that break the line of the defence, the, the defensive line just at the right time to break into the penalty area. 
So it gives you the ability to run from deep and then break that line and get onto the end of three balls or clipped in balls or crosses. Whereas as the nine, you kind of lose that explosive ability a little bit because he's not a player who who's particularly comfortable when he's receiving the ball with his back to goal at the moment, which is quite often the case with young footballers, young attackers. That That's something that will be added to his game as he develops and gets more exposure to the pictures that you see in those kind of situations. So as he plays as a nine, then you lose that explosive ability to move from deep quickly and break lines. But um, I think that going forward, he is going to be somebody who is likely to move sooner or later from Copenhagen. There's already been interest, I believe, from RB Leipzig. and They were linked to a 5 million euro move at one point recently. And you always get the feeling that if the RB, the Red Bull group, are interested right. in a young player, then you kind of know that there has to be something there. Um, definitely a player who would fit that kind of high-tempo, counter-pressing style that they like to play. Yeah, Manchester United fans might be slightly familiar with Durami having yeah. played against um, Copenhagen in the Europa League this season. And I think I'm right in thinking he he was the player who who put Eric Bay um, on the floor in, right. just inside the box. Yeah, in in that um, in that second leg, I think it was. But I think it's a fair to say that fans of all teams will be becoming more and more familiar with the name Durami, particularly if those RB Leipzig links begin to pick up speed uh, in in the coming months. And you mentioned that he's played um, through the through the middle as a nine, um, more of a centre forward, left left wing, right wing, um, throughout last season. And I suppose this, what makes his about his game that means he's, he's so versatile? Is it something to do with his physical profile? Yeah, potentially. I mean, he's got that that ability to move really well. He's not a striker, so there are different profiles of players when you talk about players who can play as a nine. You, you have the players who will drop into space, a la Roberto Firmino, who will drop into 10 space to receive the ball. You'll have the players who look constantly to run off the shoulder of the last defender, like a Jamie Vardy profile. Um, so there are different ways that the nine can play. I think that Dharami, in terms of his, his versatility, most of it comes from his comfort at receiving the ball. So he can receive the ball anywhere in the final third. Like I say, with his back to goal, he doesn't quite receive the ball in the nine position with the ability to link him with others. It's more about when he can receive the ball with an open body position than he takes his first touch out of his feet. And then he's instantly attacking defensive players, so whether left, right or centre. If you can get the ball to him in a little pocket of space, then you know that he's going to be aggressive in his, 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 the way that he looks to progress the ball towards the opposition goal, which is what you want from an attacking player. You want attacking players who can pick the ball up and then move quickly with speed. And then they can accelerate past players. They can take players on one-on-one. He has excellent balance. He's got the ability to switch speed as well, which means that he could slow the defender down before quickly going on the inside or the outside. He is right-footed, which is why he, he tends to prefer to play, I think, on the left-hand side. And it's that, that profile of a wide player when they're, they're playing on the, the opposite side to the dominant foot so he looks to take possession and then cut in field towards goal which is I think again where he he has that similarity to Sadio Mane with that that willingness and that single mindedness to always look towards goal whenever he takes possession of those areas. 
Yeah, that single-mindedness is something that, that struck me when, when watching him, and especially for a player so young. You know, he clearly has a, a great deal of self-belief in his in his ability. And yeah, the 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 the, the building blocks and the foundations of, of the skills that you'd need to play that role at a higher level certainly are there at the moment, even if it, he isn't really polished. But I mean, he's 18 years old, so I mean, that'll come, especially yeah. when he moves sort of to, to a more competitive league and is training with, you know, better players every day, competing against better players. Uh, in every competitive fixture, so yeah, I think uh, Modarami is definitely one to, to to keep an eye on, but especially this season because you know, it, I mean, depending on how he develops, it could well be his last year in Denmark. So yeah, yeah. Um, uh, next up, we we have Kamal Dean Suleimana, who is another eighteen-year-old, um, plays for Nordjylland and is a product of Nordjylland's Right to Dream academy setup that has had so much success in West Africa. Um, Mohamed Kudus, who moved to AFC Ajax this summer is one of the most famous products of that pathway to European football. Uh, and he's nothing short of excellent. We'll get onto him uh, when we cover our uh, Netherlands segment, which is a little spoiler. Um, but before we get back to Suleimana, just a little bit of background on Right to Dream. It's an academy set up um, by Tom Vernon, a British entrepreneur in Ghana. And it has helped to fast track the best young players in that region um, to football clubs around the world, which... It's fantastic. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's really rigorous with the scouting and trialing they do. I was so surprised when I was sort of doing my doing my reading up on Right to Dream. Um, well, once every two years, around twenty students are picked from thirty thousand trialists and, and given scholarships at the academy, which also provides them with an education, of course. So, I mean, in terms of the social conscience of this um, uh, of this academy setup and and the, the pathway to European football, it's it's giving. You know, players in in a region where ordinarily they may not have sort of the same access to professional scouts um, at their games that you know the likes of um, players in in London or, or Paris may have, but it's really given them that that platform to 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 excel. And of, of course, with such a stringent intake, that's only going to you know that's only going to get the best players that are there. Um, Kamal Dean Suleimana is a product of that setup and, and plays for one of the youngest teams across Europe in Nordjylland. Um, Lee, do you think that that helps these young lads bed in and, and acclimatise that they're not having to join a team of established professionals? To an extent, yeah, I think so. I think the, the one of the most interesting things for me when preparing for this podcast was that we're going to discuss different player pathway systems, if you like. So, yeah, this is the, the Right to Dream Nordisland partnership. And what's really interesting is that Right to Dream actually own Nordisland. It's, it's not a partnership and it's not the other way around. Nordsland don't own Right to Dream. Right to Dream have actually invested to the point where they are now the owners of this Danish top-tier club who I think that everybody has become increasingly aware of over the last two or three seasons in terms of not just the, the results in Danish Super League, which, which have been excellent for a team of their their size and their, their infrastructure, but they've become really aware of them in terms of the, the kind of players that they're starting to produce and and yes, Suleimana is somebody who is maybe coming in now. He got slight exposure at the end of last season. Um, there were minutes picked up by Suleimana towards the end of last term when, when he was coming on and, and being able to affect the game, whether as a substitute or even from starting appearances. He's, he, he was somebody who really, really impressed. But I think that with the likes of Kudus and Damsgaard, who's off, also moved on from Norseland over the last few months, with those kind of players moving on, it's only natural that the, the next step in the player pathway is for Norseland to go back to that pipeline and take the next players through. And they will enjoy playing with players who are considered their peers as opposed to maybe more hardened veterans, if you like. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Well, it's it's not interesting whatsoever. It's normal that you'd mention his, you know, his debut campaign or, or rather his half campaign. You know, four goals in, in 13 appearances is essentially what you'd call hitting the ground running in top like professional football. Um, Style-wise, what, what is it about Suleimana that makes him one of your picks from, from the Danish Superliga? He is perhaps one of the most explosive young attackers that I've seen coming through in, in recent times in European football. He is, again, a player who prefers to play from the left-hand side. Again, he's right-footed, so he has, you already know as soon as you have those two pieces of information about a player, you know that his player profile will mean that he has a tendency to attack from outside to in and head towards goal. What really struck me when I was looking at Suleimana towards the end of last season, and I was actually tipped off. I was speaking to somebody who had worked in the, the Nordsland um, youth system as a coach, and we were talking about players, and I was talking about how much I love Mohamed Kudus, who again we're going to talk about later on. And he told me at the time that Kudus is great, but watch out for Suleimana. And that was just before Suleimana actually made his first team breakthrough. And that's why I was, I was so keen to get eyes on him as soon as I could, as soon as he played. And what really struck me is that he's got this rare ability in attacking players. He's just as quick with the ball as he is without the ball. And that's something that always tips me to a player with a physical profile, which is going to be extremely interesting. He, he's got this, this quick feet, the ability to drive. And again, like Darby, he's, he's very, very aggressive carrying the ball towards the opposition. His first thought when he takes possession is to drive towards goal. And he's got great balance. So you'll, you'll see him look to do step overs. He's got quick feet. So he'll move one way or the other. He waits for the defender to commit and then he bursts in the opposite direction. So he has that ability that, that really top-tier elite attacking players have to attack you on the outside or the inside just as easily. That there's no way you can't show him just down the outside because he'll, he'll burst past you with his speed and then cut it. You can't show him inside because, again, his speed, if you let him come centrally, he's, he's a threat to shoot from distance. He can break into penalty area and finish with composure. Or you can link him with other attacking players. So... He really is somebody who I think is going to only have a short time at Norseland. And it's going to be interesting to see exactly how he deals with full exposure this season. Staying with Norseland, um, there's another African teenager there, um, but less of an attacker than, than the two we've discussed previously. Um, Mohamed Diomande from Cote d'Ivoire, um, just 18 years of age again, uh, and unsurprisingly, uh, another right-to-dream right yeah. graduate. Um you know, he, he's one who isn't going to be breaking any goal-scoring records in Denmark, but, you know, what makes him a standout on the same sort of level as Dharami and um, Suleimana? Well, you say that, but he did score at the weekend in the, the defeat against Zombie. He, <laughs> typical. He, he scored it's typical opening. that I mentioned that now. <laughs> he scored the opening goal. It was quite a tidy finish. I think that, that Diomande is a player, and before we talk about Diomande, it's really interesting, you're right, he's a coach the bar player. Um, somebody who uh, will go on, I believe, to become a full international in no time at all for them. But that just speaks to the reach of the Right to Dream Academy. Because previously, they, they would only really take Ghanaian players. That, that tends to be, they were set up by Tom Vernon to be this, like say, it's very much a, show, a social enterprise. It's not just football-based. They also do a lot of work in terms of getting scholarships for players and, and young people to go to the United States. And that's that's a great aspect of what they do. But they're obviously expanding their reach. They can have a young player like Diomande from, from Cote d'Ivoire come in and become a part of that right to dream pathway. Um, he's a player who still hasn't quite settled on a position. He, he has played at left back. 
He has played in the centre midfield. I have a, an inkling that he will develop more fully as a central midfielder as he goes on. But he's left-footed and very, very comfortable receiving the ball. Very press-resistant because of his frame. He's quite a powerful frame. Somebody who the opposition don't find it easy to get around when he takes the ball into his feet. And he's got that, that ability that you see from the likes of Wilfred and Didi, if you like. The, that long limbs and the ability to just, as the opposition think they're about to win the ball, suddenly the ball's not there anymore because it's been spirited away and just flicked past them. Diomande has a, a similar kind of style. He, he's got really good passing range and good vision. He, he's intelligent with the positions that he takes up in the midfield when he plays there. But as well as that, he's also explosive because you see him play at left back and he is mm. a driving left back. So he has this really interesting mix of of physical and tactical and technical styles, it, it just you have a player there who could almost be moulded into anything you want him to become, and he could become anything that he wants to become. And what's really great is that he's coming into this Nordsland team, a team who is so player focused, if you like, in terms of their output. They, they they're not a team who who you think have a rigid tactical style because it, it can change. They're aware that they will lose key players on a regular basis because that's part of their model. That's part of their business model and, and that's incorporated into the game model. So they'll make sure that they put Diomande in positions where he can succeed and where he can become the best version of himself. And then as with Suleiman and as with the others that have come before, I have no doubt that he'll move on to a top five league. So that's two from Nordsjælland and one from Copenhagen. Lee, I'm convinced you've chosen this last player, so I have to pronounce the team he plays for. <laughs> um, FC Midtjylland. Um, good luck spelling it. It's even more difficult. Um, the, the player who plays for this team, whose name I won't butcher again, uh, is Evander. Um, Brazilian, 22 years old, attacking midfielder, and someone who's who's been on sort of my personal radar for, for, for uh, say, about a season or so. Um, now, you know, he's, he's pretty much as good as a double goal threat as you can find in Denmark, really, isn't he? Yeah, I think that we, we just talked about three 18-year-olds. I think that it's almost worth pointing out that there are players who are further along their development pathway <laughs> that, that it's worth talking about in, in Denmark. And you're right, Van der Midtjylland is is one of those. I'm Similar to you, he's been on my radar for a little while. I've, I've been really like things that I see from him on the pitch in terms of his ability to create and to, to score goals as well. He's a player who who's Brazilian. Originally, I think, at Vasco da Gama in, in Brazil before he moved to Denmark, initially on loan and then permanently. I think it's very likely, so with some of the other players that we've just talked about, that this will be his last season in Denmark. Because once players hit that kind of 23 age range in Denmark, that's when you start to see their value in terms of a move to the top five league depreciate slightly. Um, he can play as an 8 or a 6 or even as a 10. He can play anywhere across that, that central midfield section, if you like. And it's a testament to his versatility from a tactical point of view that, that he's capable of doing so many different things. He's comfortable receiving in deeper areas where he has space and where he can then progress the ball. His range and the weight of pass, if anybody gets a chance and anyone has access to the Scout, you can lose yourself just looking at the playlist of his through balls because... They're, they're so varied, outside of the boot, inside of the boot, driven, lofted. He, he has this ability just to penetrate lines to the opposition, which a lot of top teams are really coveting these days. But at the same time, he can receive the ball in the final third. He can receive the ball under pressure. 
he isn't as perhaps pressure resistant as a Diomande in terms of his, his body size and the ability to hold off pressure. But instead, he does it through quick manipulation of the ball and he moves the ball quickly in tight spaces and prevents the opposition from winning it from them. But he, he has a huge goal threat, both in terms of his ability to strike from range, his ability to arrive late in the penalty area, and he takes set pieces. So I think he will, even with the, the re-signing by Michelin in recent weeks of Pioni Sisto, who, who I know that used to be a, a favourite of scouting football, I mm. think that having Evander in there, he will be a key player for them this season. I think if if I were Ron Atkinson, I think I'd say that he's he's very much an all action box to box type yeah, of player. You know, he's exactly. going he's gonna to do a lot between both penalty areas, um, which I mean is is great because it shows it, it it gives you something that sometimes teams just don't play with this. Like you said about Nordsjælland, they they don't they're not very system focused. They're more player focused. I think with a player like Evander, yes, you can you can put him in in that sort of central midfield general area and you know that whatever task you really ask of him um, you're probably going to get a good result and that, I think that's quite important for you know a club like Midtjylland who are of you know they're going to be playing varying ranges of, of, of like opposition clubs in terms of difficulty you know competing in European competition um, as well as it more domestically in Denmark so yeah, I think you know you can get multiple roles out of him, and, and you know he played against Rangers in in last year's um, Europa League qualifying rounds, if I remember rightly, and got um, a goal and assist across the two ties. So maybe there's a few others in Scotland who who remember Ivander from that time. I'm sure they will. <laughs> Definitely. Um, moving on to Belgium now, um, there are a number of players currently and previously in the Premier League who who either moved directly to England or via other leagues first, who originated in the Belgium top flight or at least passed through in transit. Um, Romelu Lukaku, Christian Benteke, Moussa Dembele, Alexander Mitrovic even passed through on his way to Newcastle and Fulham. Um, Kevin De Bruyne, how could I forget him? Uh, you know, the list goes on. So to many, I guess it won't be a surprise to find that, you know, there are plenty of hidden gems and, and essentially well-known gems in that league. Um, Lee, your first pick is actually a player I haven't heard of, never mind seen play. Um, Terry Moffy at KV Kortrick. Uh, now, because I don't know very much, I did a little bit of homework on him, and to me, it looks like he's been on quite the journey. You know, could you shed a bit more, bit more light on that? Yeah, I think that we we referenced it slightly with one of the players before. We talked about the Nordland pathway to European football, and and that's one that's really become more more significant over recent years. I think that Teremofi is taking a completely different route to to Europe from Nigeria, where he was born, but it's one that is becoming more well-known, if you like, is, is especially the last 12 months. I think that this is becoming something that we're seeing more and more. Uh, he initially made the move over to Udemy football to play in Lithuania, um, which is obviously not a, a footballing hotspot and not somewhere where you really expect to find these, these young, exciting players. But he moved in 2018 to Kaunas in in Lithuania. And he, he, was there with their, he was there for a little while before he then moved on to a second team in Uterai which is uh, more of a, a selling club, if you like. They're a, they're a club in Lithuania who take players in and then look to sell them on. And when he moved to Kortrijk in, in 2020, he's only been there since the start of this year, the reported fee is only €135,000, which is for a player who has made such an impression in Belgium already that he's already been talked about as a potential €5 million Euro striker. And you can, just, you can already see the kind of profit that that uh, Kortrijk are looking to make through this, this 
ability to take players from undervalued markets and then give them game time in a more established league and then all of a sudden the players value just skyrockets from there um interestingly enough we're now seeing that Kaunos Algiris, his first club, are, are trying to repeat the trick. They have a player who, if anybody wants to have a look at a more obscure league, they have a, a young Nigerian player called Emmanuel David at the moment, a, a right winger, right foot attacker. He's someone who has an extremely interesting profile as well that I've got on one of my lists. So, and uh, there's an there's an additional bonus player for, for all the listeners if you like. Moffy um, though is a, a striker. Um, there, there's no doubt at all. He is a number nine, very much capable of playing as a as lone striker, but you could also play as a two with a, a slightly more mobile striker ahead of him. What's interesting about, about Moffy is that he's able to score a variety of different types of goals. You'll see him score with his right, with his left, with his head. You'll see him bundle the ball over the line or shoot from range. And that's the kind of picture when you're looking at strikers and you're trying to evaluate strikers. That's the kind of thing that starts to, to really pique the interest because he's not somebody who relies on purely on service of other players. He can pick the ball up at the halfway line and run into space and then have a shot for himself. At the same time, if the ball comes in from a, a wide area, he's able to, to attack this ball in the penalty area. As soon as you get a number nine, a striker who has that different skill set and the, the varied ability and the instinct to score goals and be in the right place, I think you have a player who becomes really, really interesting. He's equally capable of receiving the ball with his back to goal, which is something we talked about with Darby perhaps not being quite there earlier on. Moffy has got the frame that he can pick that ball up. He's 21, so he's now at the point where you'd expect him from a physical perspective that, that what you see is pretty much what you're going to get with, with the exception of perhaps adding or removing muscle. So he shields the ball well and has the ability to use his body to turn the defenders. He's, he's really good at wait until the defender initiates contact and he's got possession, then you'll see him make these little spin moves to get a little bit of space. That's where he generates shot opportunities at the edge of the penalty quite often. Um, he He's a good finisher, he's good to compete defenders one-on-one. He just has this, he has everything that you're looking for at a top-level striker at the moment, but he just needs to build on the experience that he's got at Portrait. He's, he's made a really good impression since he moved there. To after football restarted at the end of last season, he did extremely well, and he started this season well as well. Yeah, Lithuania is a very rogue league to have played in. Um, yeah, exactly. and I, 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 I'm going out on a limb here, but I think you're probably the first guest we've had on here who's watched at least a decent a decent amount of of Lithuanian football. And I don't want to call it a footballing backwater because I know that Scotland does get a lot of its (laughs) sort of qualification points in major tournament qualifying from playing Lithuania. But, you know, it it, it is in in essence, you know, he clearly did well enough um, for Kortrick to find him and fair play to this club's scouting network for identifying him in the the A-Liga of Lithuania. Now, my my scouted football credentials are, are very much on the line here. You know, not knowing Terry Moffy is a strike, and I don't know how many of those I've got over the years. So I kind of need to know the next player you suggested, and thankfully I do. Um, Yusuf Baji at Club Bruges, um, Senegalese forward who had a great preseason and, and has carried that through into the games he's played so far in Belgium this year. Um, he's an interesting one because he was still playing in Senegal at the beginning of 2020, or at the very least at the, the back end of 2019, which... I mean, to most of us who are still very much mentally in March, um, that doesn't seem too long ago. 
Um, so I mean, I guess he's he's relatively new to European leagues, but starting already for for Club Bruges is, is some endorsement, really, isn't it? Yeah, that that was what really stood out in Baji. Um, he's obviously played a lot for Senegal in terms of their their youth international teams, if you like, and he, he's always made an impact when he does so. But he is a player who has only just moved. You're right to football. He's only just moved to Belgium, and already he is he is playing as part of this this Club Bruges attack. Club Bruges have got such a a strong set of strikers. He's playing up front with David Okereke at the moment, and the two of them seem to be developing a really interesting partnership. They had Crepin Diata um, as well, uh, and he was great in in the Champions League last season. If I remember rightly, he scored a great goal against uh, Galatasaray. Um, but what what do you think it is about Baji that makes you think uh, that makes you think Philippe Clement has gone? You know what? He's he's absolutely ready to 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 be in this team and be in such a key position in this team already. You know, is it something about him physically? Um, how he fits into Clement's uh, tactical plans? I think that first of all, Belgium is one of my favourite nations to scout, and and the Belgian top tier, even the Belgian second tier, there are so many interesting players and. There's a, there's a running theme around it sometimes when you look at these clubs that they really like powerful strikers. They, they really like big, tall, powerful strikers who can receive the ball, but who are also explosive in terms of their pace. And, and that pretty much sums up Yusuf Baji. He's, he's 192 centimetres tall. He is a very tall human being. Now, he's mm. not filled out. He, he's still quite slight with that. He, he moves well when he's in space. He's got good pace and ability to open up those legs. And he, brings himself and creates separation from defenders that way. But he is extremely good. He's one of these strikers, and this might be because he's still quite raw, because he's still not quite developed a full understanding of the rigours of European football. But he is incredibly unpredictable when he gets the ball. Uh, there was one moment I was watching um, back at the start of the season, I was watching Club Brugge play, and he got the ball and he just started flicking the ball up over defenders' heads. And you, <laughs> you can see they weren't quite sure what was going on. His long legs make it so that he can collect the ball again when he does that. And then he moved past defenders that way. He's also a genuine handful when the ball comes into the penalty area. Because not only is his size, but it's easy for people to say that if a player is above 190 centimetres tall, he must be dominant in the air. And that might be the case from a defensive point of view to an extent. But when you're talking about scoring goals, scoring headed goals from set pieces or from open play, a player also has to understand how to read and react to the flight of the ball. Not all strikers can do that. They're not all as good at watching the ball coming in and understanding exactly where that's going to come and what trajectory is going to arrive at. Baji seems to have that ability. You can see him almost adjust his run and his body shape as he's moving towards the ball. And then he has the ability to meet the ball at really good angles and, and gets headers in. I think that Philip Clement is, is really putting a lot of faith in a player who's only 18 and, again, who's only just moved to Europe. But it's a measure of his, his promise and his potential that that faith has already been placed in him. Yeah, I, I resonate with what you're saying there about you know players who are six foot three, six foot four, and the the assumption that oh well they they've got to be good in the air. It's kind of a, a, a stick that they're they're, they're tarnished with um, at times. You know, if, if they're not good in the air, then why not? They've already have an advantage. But I think yeah, it it especially in in, in an attacking sense, it does depend on you know your reading of the game elsewhere, and we we see that manifested time and time and time again. Um, and also with the whole, you know, he hasn't filled out properly yet. I think that if he's doing well as it is at the moment, then you do have to think that he, I mean, he is 18 years old, so you can expect him to to fill out. 
um, at some point in the next couple of years. And at that point, um, you know, that's when he, he could really, really become a, a massive, massive handful because there's, there's a few players that we're going to we're going to discuss later on. Um, and there's one in particular that I watched very closely who, when he broke into the first team, um, you know, he, he was still quite a wiry, but um, but influential character um, in, in sort of the bit part games that he played. But now coming into this season, he seems to have really put on a bit of mass. And yeah, he's, he, he looks looks like he could be a, a truck uh, this season, um, based on his first few goals he scored, that's a little um, a little spoiler there for, for the air divisi section. But I won't give his name away. Um, next up, we've probably got the most well known player we've discussed so far, though, um, and that's Jeremy Doku, who's been recently very tentatively linked with Liverpool. Um, but he's another eighteen year old, a, a winger for Anderlecht. Uh, recently made his, his Belgium debut, um, managed to get on the score sheet as well. Uh, Lee, would it be appropriate to describe him as a pocket rocket? <laughs> I think that that's pretty much exactly it, isn't it? Um, You've described him very well there. He's got that that ability. A lot of the players. It's quite funny when when you we first started talking about this podcast and we we talked about having different leagues and different players in those leagues. And I found myself suggesting players that that all seem to be attacking players. I don't know why that is. Um, it might be uh, an unconscious bias for myself. I mean, I think that for the last few Scout Football handbooks that I've contributed to, I've been given defenders to, to write about it. <laughs> Maybe I'm just trying to address the balance a little bit. I'm not sure. But but when we, we mentioned Belgium, and I already talked about the fact that I really like the Belgian league in terms of scouting, in terms of identifying players. And Jeremy Doku is a player who you can't fail but, but be impressed by who you see him play. He is he is diminutive, I think 171 centimetres. He's not the tallest player. But what he does have... And, it's talked about quite often when you talk about players like like Lionel Messi, it always comes up low centre of gravity, and that's what Jeremy Doku has. He's got this ability that makes it very difficult for taller, more physical defenders to push him off the ball because he has this almost ability to almost move round them while they're trying to engage and press and initiate contact. Before they know it, Doku's already gone, he's already skipped past that contact. and if they then make contact at that point, they take him down, and that's why he wins so many free kicks. Um, I think he's one of the, the most fouled players in the Belgian Pro League, which is no surprise when you see him play. But he is, again, he, he's the same profile as some other players that we've talked about. We've talked about Darame, we've talked about Sulemana, and Doku is the same. He's, he's right-footed, but he likes to play from the left of the attack because then he can move inside. But what's interesting is that Anderlecht especially, they, they also like to switch him. So mid-game, you'll quite often see Doku switch from left to right, and suddenly he'll be on the right-hand side, where that profile in terms of his dominant foot gives you a completely different picture. When he picks the ball up on the right, he's more likely to drive around the outside. He doesn't have the same ability or the same desire to go inside or outside. He likes to be on his dominant side, and he's so effective with it. So on the right hand of the pitch, Doku will get the ball and skip past you and try and put the ball into the penalty area. On the left side of the pitch, he'll try and cut inside and penetrate the penalty area. He has that ability to almost do either. It's no surprise for me that a team who has the, the recruitment department who is a, as fantastic as Liverpool's is, that it's without a doubt for me the best in European football at the moment. I mean, what tends to happen is these things are cyclical and other teams will, will emerge as really good recruiters over time. But it's no surprise to me that Liverpool are again being linked to Doku. I think that he has now had enough exposure at first-team football, 
even only at 18, to suggest that it is time for him to move on from Anderlecht. Interestingly enough, um, you mentioned about how he uh, it could be sort of his, his time to move on from Belgium. Um, his, I, I wonder whether this is part of the reason why he's been linked um, to Liverpool. It's that his contract expires at the end of June 2022, which for a lot of these younger prospects is rather soon in comparison. Yeah. Um, because you obviously you look to to tie down these players for four or five years to you know to protect your asset essentially. I mean, we see that with the the Nordzeland guys, they're they're contracted until 2024, 2025. Um, for you, does that mean that this this probably will be his final year in Belgium? And would it you know would it be where where would be sort of the right move stylistically to sort of in general terms to 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 a country? Would you feel? I think that this will be his last year in Belgium. I think that you're absolutely right about the, the issue around protecting your asset. That's why clubs, when they, they negotiate with younger players, they want to have at least a minimum of three years on that contract. Because once a player gets down to two years, they're only 12 months away from potentially leaving for a free at the end of that next year. And that becomes a real issue in terms of the kind of value, market value and price that you're going to get from a player. I think that from a stylistic point of view, Doku is somebody who will fit in the Premier League. Um, he has that explosive ability. He has, he has because he's, we've already talked about the fact that he's not the biggest player, not the most powerful player, you can imagine the kind of treatment that he has had from some defences already, that there are times when there has been genuine contact made on him and he's been roughed up a little bit, if you like, for, for lack of a better phrase. And that's something that suits him to good stead because he has this ability. Yes, he goes down, he takes a knock, but then he gets back up again and demands the ball again and wants to go again. So I don't think he would be put off by the perceived aggressive nature of Premier League defences. But at the same time, you can see him be, be a real asset to a lot of clubs in German football with that more transitional type of play that many of them play. You could see him on the left of the attack for Mönchengladbach under Marco Rosa. You could see him playing for for Lucien Favre at Borussia Dortmund. You could see him as that player who receives the ball at the halfway line and then progresses the ball through through his driving of possession. So there are a lot of different options for him going forward. It'll just be a case of waiting to see exactly what he and his representatives decide to do, I think. Germany was, was the uh, the place that I sort of had thought you might say, um, just purely because of that transitional style of football. I think everybody kind of got uh, a real taste of what the Bundesliga was all about in that sort of month-long period where it was the only football, apart from the Belarusian Premier League, that, that we were able to, to watch live um, a couple of months ago. Um, but the the final player based in Belgium that we'd like to discuss is, is a new arrival. I mean, we love a new face. It's transfer season after all. Um, Osman Bukhari began uh, the 2020-21 season in Slovakia with AS Trenčín, um, who've been known to pick up the occasional star from time to time. Um, Bukhari joined them in 2018, actually, from, from Accra Lions in Ghana for £50,000 or roughly there, there thereabouts. But he's now playing for, for Ghent, who, who could be playing um, Champions League football this season if they get through the qualifying rounds, which I think, if you look back on it, I mean, that's, that's a magnificent story arc you know, to, to go from play in 2018 playing for, you know, in, in the Ghanaian Premier League to, to Slovakia, then to Belgium, to the, the Champions League and the potential ties that that could throw up. Lee, I mean, Lee, why is, why is Bukhari a player that you picked out? He is one of my personal favourites. He, he's one, 
I do a lot of work um, behind the scenes with total football analysis in terms of doing data analysis and things like that and looking really in depth at the advanced statistics and the numbers around different leagues. That's why that's why I end up watching Lithuanian football sometimes because <laughs> if something really pops out in Lithuania, you'll go and have a look and you'll look at it's just to see. Um, Oswin Bukhari was one of these. I mean, you're absolutely right to touch on the fact that the French you know, have got a, a reputation for being really clever in terms of their recruitment. They're a club who is known to use data extensively in terms of how they recruit players. And um, Bukhari is actually an interesting case because he's already spent some time in Belgium because he had a loan spell at Anderlecht while he was still at Accra Lions, but that deal never materialised for one reason or another. So he went back to Accra and then he moved and moved to Slovakia. In Slovakia, it was a slow start. He was extremely raw when he first went to Slovakia. And there's still an element of his game which is raw, even at 21. But I think that since Ghent have gone out and made this signing, they're one of the smartest clubs in Belgium in terms of the players that they recruit. That's why they had Jonathan David before people really understood what Jonathan David was. And then also sold them on to Lille. Um, I think Bukhari's got the, the capacity to become a player who becomes really well-known in European football. If he gets to play in the Champions League, then make sure you don't miss that game because he's a player who is fascinating to watch. He is best described as explosive, I think. Again, a, a winger, but he's a player who's right-footed but prefers to play on the right. So again, as soon as you have those two pieces of information, you have a little bit of an insight into his player profile. He's a, a dribbler. He's a player who takes possession, and his first thought is just to attack the opposition goal. And he does so with such ferocity when he hits the ball. He just drives at people absolutely rapid and looks at as soon as a defender's off balance, you know that he's going to knock the ball past him and just be gone. What's really interesting to me is that when when Slovakian football came back in a post-COVID state, that he suddenly seemed to have found that final ball, which perhaps he was missing to an extent before that. So now his delivery of the penalty area was sharper. The trajectory was better. He was finding driven cutbacks instead of always looking for the cross to the back post or the driven cross to the near post. But he was also cutting inside from those advanced areas. He's good at getting round the outside, but then cutting inside almost in a almost square on to the penalty area, if you like. And then he's got this ability to manipulate the ball and shoot a goal. So all in all, he's a player who's got a really interesting profile. And moving to a club like Gentu, last year they, they never really played with wide forwards. They played more of a diamond system. But now under a new coach, they're looking to transition into a 4-3-3. So there's a good chance that Bakari will feature on the right of that attack. Yeah, you, you, it's an interesting story, as as you mentioned, um, that you know he he came to Belgium originally with Andelect. Um, that obviously didn't work out, and I think to to show this the the metal to to go to somewhere like Slovakia, which I mean it's not going to be easy to adapt to. No. Um, you know, for, for for anybody, never mind somebody you know who who already. I mean, I don't want to use the word failed; it's a big term, but had already tr- chanced his arm in Europe and maybe hadn't, you know, left the impact that he that he may have desired. How do you think that he's going to adapt to that higher level of football? Do you think because there is that element of rawness there, yeah. and and it did raise a, a smile when I saw him on your list because I have seen you tweet about him yeah. a, a, occasionally in the past couple of weeks or so, um, but. You know, I just not not that I've got concerns or that I worry, but I think sometimes you see with raw players who may not have had that final ball or may not have developed it for for into their game for for too long. 
you know, is he ready for this yet? Or would you maybe have given him another season or even just another few months in Slovakia to be, if you're Ghent, to be really sure of your investment? I think that from a, in terms of his, his development, in terms of his ability to to adapt to the Belgian league in terms of the football, I think that coming into that league as a 21-year-old, having already experienced European football at Trenchen, makes that transition slightly easier. That's why I think it was, it was like you say, a very brave move for him to go to Slovakia because there's some quality in the Slovakian league, but there's also a lot of defenders who will just kick you to try and run past them. That's still an element of the game in Slovakia. So he has had some physical treatment. I think that the cultural assimilation is also going to be slightly easier in Belgium as opposed to Slovakia, where there are more players in the Belgian league who have had similar pathways or similar development trails as he has, if you like. So he's coming into a league where there are more players of African heritage. There's more of a a multicultural society in Belgium, perhaps, than there is in Slovakia to an extent, and that will be easier for him. I think that in terms of the football, what we can do really, really well, and, and this is something that that's important, I think, in football, and this is when you, you start to really identify which clubs are are aggressive in terms of the recruitment of young players, that they're willing to take players like Jonathan Davis, like Osman Bukhari, who perhaps haven't fully developed and established themselves yet. And in doing so, they perhaps get them at a slightly reduced rate than they would otherwise. It's, it's similar, going back again to talk slightly about Sadio Mane. When Sadio Mane was at RB Salzburg, there, there was a huge amount of interest in Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, Liverpool were interested, Arsenal were interested. All of these super clubs were interested. But the common theme was he's only playing in Austria. So they wanted to wait till he went to another club and he did something in a more established league and then they would be willing to play a, pay a premium on top of the price to get that. That's similar to what Ghent do, but reversed. They don't want to wait to have to play the premium. So they're willing to bet on this player's talent, which is something that, that they've obviously taken a punt on. But even then, for a Champions League club, even post-COVID, €1 million, Euros, which is an important cost, isn't going to break the bank for them. Yeah, actually, one million. I didn't know that was the that was the fee. So I mean, that <laughs> it's not exactly yeah. As you're going to say, as you say, going to break the bank for, for Ghent, especially because they were in European competition last season yeah. in the Europa League, and you know they do have the small matter of thirty million euros for Jonathan David um, coming onto their onto their balance sheet. Um, now for for the final country of the three, it's the Netherlands and the Eredivisie, and probably the best known and strongest league of the three we've discussed. You know, home to AFC Ajax, PSV Eindhoven. Azir Alkmaar, Feyenoord, among others. You know, this is often the final outpost for, for talented players from obscure divisions before making that final leap to a top five league. Um, it's also home to a huge number of clubs who really focus on bringing through their own talent. And that's what Azir Alkmaar have done with Maran Boadu, who had an excellent breakout season with them last year. Um, 14 goals in 24 league appearances, six more in Europe. You know, like Darami at Copenhagen, also faced Manchester United in the Europa League. Maybe didn't have the impact he wanted, but at the same time, it's going to be an experience nonetheless. How soon do you think it will be before we're seeing Boadu in a top five league, Lee? I think that he's potentially got 12 more months in Holland. I think that towards the end of this season, we'll really start. That's that's if, I mean, the, the issue that Boadu has is that, yes, last year was his breakout, but he was part of that as a first team squad before that. He suffered an injury which curtailed his development slightly and made his exposure to first-team football come a little bit later than Azed initially wanted. Um, 
I think a lot of people have been aware of what Boadu is for a long time. It's just a case of waiting now for him to kick on that little bit more before the interest really starts to drive up. I mean, this is a 19-year-old who's already made his competitive debut and scored his first competitive goal for the Dutch national team. So you know that at 19, if you're breaking into that team as a striker, you must have something about you, which is what a lot of people are looking at. I mean, he's, he's a player who isn't as explosive as some of the, the others that we've, we've talked about, but that doesn't mean he lacks pace. He does have pace, but his pace and the way that he uses his pace is different to that of a wide player because he uses it to create separation in tight pockets around the penalty area where suddenly you'll see him make a sharp movement either off the shoulder of the defender or away from the defender to receive the ball. And this ability is something that is really, really interesting for me in a number nine because he has the ability to come and get the ball and then he'll turn and try and penetrate the penalty area. But he also has that ability to spin the defender and make a run behind the defensive line. And as soon as he receives the ball in space around the penalty area, he has that single-mindedness that he is going to attempt to get a shot at goal. I think that what we've seen a little bit is that there's still an element of poor shot locations and poor shot choices. That's again normal for a young forward player who's still in his development phase because he's still single-minded in his approach to goal. If somebody can get a hold of him now and teach him the, the intricacies of XG a little bit and take better shots from better locations, I think that you'll see a striker whose goal output will start to explode and with that, of course, comes more interest. I think that one small issue in terms of his his movement to a top five league is that he's already represented by the infamous Nina Raiola. So automatically, I think some players, some clubs may be put off by that. Yeah, that I mean that is a concern. He could certainly be a problem for for opposition teams if you know that those shot locations improve because twenty goals already yeah. and maybe not taking the best uh, shooting decisions is a fairly good return, um, to say the least. And, you know, he's part of this thrilling AZ team. You know, they're very young, probably one of our favourites that scouted throughout the 2019-20 campaign because, you know, they also have uh, Calvin Stengs, Owen Vandal, and Tane Koopminers, the captain at 22 years old. You know, they're, they're, they're an excellent young team. Um, the, the reason I said earlier that Denmark was probably the weakest of these three leagues is because it is sort of acted as, as a conveyor belt to the air division at times. You know, Christian Eriksen, for example, moving to the Dutch top flight, Lasse Schoener, Victor Fischer. And, you know, that's, that's no different with this next player, uh, Mohamed Kudus, who we touched on earlier. Um, he signed this summer at the Amsterdam Arena uh, from Nordsjælland, um, a product of the Right to Dream uh, Academy setup. Um, and at just 20 years old, you know, he, he has extreme, extreme talent. Where are you expecting to fit in? at Ajax and in the, his first year of a five-year contract, you know, what can be realistic expectations of him? I think they, they're, they're going to add him into the first team slightly slower than we perhaps expect. And, and that's something that might come as a surprise. It's a slight surprise to me because Mohamed Kudus is another of my favourite players. That's why I was so keen to talk about him today. Um, you're absolutely right. His development in Nordish was fantastic. He was, for me, the best player in the Danish Super League last term. No surprise at all that he made the move. I think he was, he was linked to the move to like Everton as well, which I think maybe wouldn't have served his development quite as well as he moved to Ajax. And it kind of speaks about the player's mentality and temperament a little bit that he has made such an intelligent step in his career to move to Ajax. I think that what he gives you is almost the ability to do whatever you like in the centre of the park. Because at times last season, Kudus played as a nine. 
he played as almost a false nine with the, the ability to drop back into midfield and then pop up again leading the line for Nordish Land. I think that at Ajax he'll play more as a central midfielder. I think with the sale of Donny van de Beek, he has the capacity to perform a similar function to van de Beek. I mean, what Manchester United fans are getting in Donny van de Beek is a midfielder who doesn't perhaps link play as a traditional playmaker but makes runs beyond the strikers and occupies space in the penalty area better than most midfielders in European football. And mm-hmm. Kudus has that similar ability. He can play, I've already seen talk of him playing as a six for Ajax, which I think might be a step backwards for him. I would much rather see him as an eight or a ten because of his ability to receive the ball in the final third. He's a really good reference player, so he has this innate ability to find pockets of space in the final third. You'll see him constantly scanning the pitch. If you watch him, just focus on him when you see him play next. He's always checking his shoulder. He's always looking for the opposition. He's always looking for his teammates. And he has this, this capacity to always seem to be in space when he receives the ball. And when you have a player who does that in the final third or just outside the penalty area, it opens up so many interesting options for using attacking output because you know you can feed him the ball and that he has the, the ability to then stay on the ball and almost pause on the ball and wait for teammates to move into better positions in the, in the attacking phase and bring others in. But he also carries a goal threat. So he's, he's one of the most multifunctional and interesting midfield players in European football for me. That's one of the things that we really liked with Donny van der Beek was those runs, you know, making the third man run beyond the attacker and make you know, getting that space and making it available for, for his teammates, you know, perhaps the ones who are, as you say, better linking play in a in a more traditional manner. Um, I think, yeah, if Kudus can can you know provide any sort of semblance of that in his first year at Ajax and then build on that from there. Uh, be an excellent, excellent move for, for him for the club. You know, of course, he he had interest, as you say, from Everton. He probably had interest from a number, a number of clubs. Um, you know, a lot of them who who will do smart scouting. Um, he, he's he's obviously landed at one of the finest footballing academies in the world. Uh, you know, and the first team doubling as a finishing school for so many players. You know, one of the academy products we we've been incredibly excited about ever since we first saw him at under seventeen level is Ryan Gravenberch. You know, he's obviously one of Kudus's Ajax teammates and looks as though he's going to be heavily involved in the centre of the park in first team matters this season. And if if you put a gun to my head, if I had to pick a breakout star for this season, um, last year's being Erlen Haaland, and the subtle flex there, uh, <laughs> then mine would be Ryan Gravenberch because he just looks so at home at this level already, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He, he's one who has been almost ready, almost made ready for first-team football for two years now. It just so happens that, that Ajax have been sensible in his development in terms of the exposure they've given him at first team level they've, they've given him bits and pieces they've given him first team minutes but then he's dropped back out again and that's been something that, that's allowed him to continue learning at this level but i think now with the sales that we've seen again with donny van de beek is gone there, there's a gap in that ajax midfield and i think that graven birch is the eight in combination with kudus and we were talking about kudus's ability to create space for others and that is where a player like graven birch could really shine from a physical standpoint, he is already a full-grown man at 18. He's 190 centimetres. He's powerful. He, he's got the frame to hold players off and bounce defenders off him as they try and engage him in shoot contact. But it's beyond that. You've got to look beyond the physical with Gravenberg's standpoint and understand exactly what he is from there. 
because his ability and his touch and his, his ability to manipulate the ball in tight areas is so good that he can quickly move past two or three defenders in, in one attacking movement. And that just creates so much space and opportunity for Ajax in the final third when you have a player centrally who can do that all of a sudden, you've got overloads left, right and centre and you're able to really progress the ball well. I think that Graven Birch will, I agree with you, I think that this will be his campaign. He stands out. He, he takes the next step in his career as another another example of an Ajax midfielder who, who perhaps is ready for the next level sooner rather than later. Um, I, I mean, I'm not one to make comparisons and I, and I hate doing so. Uh, so it's probably a bad question. But in terms of, you know, distinguishable similarities um, in Gravenberch's play um, that perhaps are mirrored in, in other maybe better known players, is there, is there anybody in particular or maybe a, a mixture of sort of facets of his play, facets of his style that you can sort of see or you can sort of draw similarities to? I think the most obvious one, and I'm similar to you, I don't talk about players. I, I made reference earlier on to Mohamed Darami being similar to Sadio Mane in terms of his player profile. That's not for me to say that Mohamed Darami is going to be Sadio Mane. They're not identical players. It's more what we talk about in recruitment quite often is we talk about player profiles. So the profile of Sadio Mane, Sadio Mane is the ideal profile. Does the player do similar things to Sadio Mane? And you can talk about the same thing with Ryan Glavenberch. He's got the same kind of upright, powerful style when he's carrying the ball and manipulating the ball. So you see similarities to Paul Pogba. You also see similarities to an Eduardo Camavinga, who's obviously younger than Glavenberch. <laughs> but, but he's another player in France at Red who has that same ability to carry the ball. He can link quickly and combine quickly with passes, or he can take the ball and dribble past you. So it's that, that dual threat from a young player in the centre of the field that becomes so interesting, especially when you then combine that technical profile with the physical profile. That's when it becomes a really interesting proposition. I'm so glad that you said Paul Pogba there because it was it was kind of eating away at me a little bit. And it's something that I've thought for, for a while and that, you know, there are just a few little a few little things, just the way that his body moves, the way that he conducts himself on the ball in those deep areas, you know, that it, it just it just constantly reminded me. I kept coming back to to it. Um, so I'm glad that you you, you echo that in, in, in a sense. Um, finally, we've reached the end of our 12-man shortlist and it's actually quite saddening because, I mean, there's nothing better than just sitting discussing the various players who may or may not be brilliant this year. Um, but last but definitely not least is, is Cody Hakpo, um, who has a special place in my heart as he was one of the players I profiled in the latest volume of the Scouted Football Handbook. Um before I start and, and, and don't stop gushing about him, Lee, what is it that you like uh, about Cody Hackpole? I, I think this is a player that you were talking about earlier on when you talked about <laughs> initially he's the, he came into the first team as a, a slight, quick attacking player. And then all of a sudden, he we talked earlier on about how players develop from a physical standpoint, they fell out. My God, Hackpole's filled out. You, you see him now. And I think, am I right in saying that he scored twice for PSV at the weekend? Yeah, I think I saw that correctly. Yeah, and that's kind of I think this is his explosion year as a twenty-one-year-old in the PSV first team under Roger Schmidt, who's one of the most fascinating, if slightly crazy, coaches in in world football. It's great to have him back in European football and at PSV. I think that Gakpo is really going to have a breakout season. He is the definition of 
again, we talk about player profiles, and he is an Arjen Robin, but on the left-hand side. You, yes. you, you know where he's going. He's got the ball. He gets the ball. You know what he's going to do. He's going to come back in on his right-hand side and his right foot, and he's either going to try and clip the ball, play the ball in the penalty area, combine with a striker, or he's going to hit the ball towards the far post. You know what he's going to do, but very, very few defenders have the ability to stop it, and that was similar to Arjen Robin. You knew what he was going to do, but his, his balance and the way that he explodes from a standing start make that so difficult for defenders to pick up. Yeah, because conventionally he's not a, a, a quick, pacey player that you might associate with um, playing in that position or, you know, in the way that Robin maybe over, I don't know, 60 metres is is fast to a loose ball. But say, for example, if he was, you know, if he's going to run um, right at the edge of the box, that's when his, his steps increase. You know, he, he starts to, um, you know, change that body position. He'll faint one way. I think there are similarities there with Hakpo. Um, and I think it was quite fitting that in PSV's first game of the season, they, which uh, he scored twice in, um, it was against Iron Robbins Groningen. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the best things, one of the best things about Hakpo is, is he was in a music video when he was about 16 uh, for a Dutch rapper. And, and in, in the music video on his bedroom wall, there's a little Millwall crest, which looks so out of place around <laughs> Cody Hakpo, um, which clearly has been picked up when he's, uh, you know, played in, in a youth youth tournament uh, for PSV. Um, but and anyway, he, he is being, you know, rubber uh, scouted, rubber stamped, tipped, backed, whatever you want to call it for, for, for a bumper season at PSV under Roger Smith, as, as you said. You know, they've been fun to watch already in preseason and in their first few games. Um, and, and you'd bet your house that they're going to continue to to be just that. Um, Lee, just one final question. There, there is obviously a wide array of talent at PSV right now. Daniel Marlin, Moe Hatterin, um, Gakpo, uh, Jordan Teze, Noni Madwek. What really can be expected of a team as a whole under Schmidt? Because, you know, he say, you say he's a bit crazy. A, a, a lot of a lot of geniuses were never appreciated in their time. You know, <laughs> no. it's a great great tactical innovator. You know, if, again, a former head coach of Red Bull Salzburg. What really can we expect from PSV this year? Schmidt was the head coach of Salzburg when they had that infamous now match against I think it was Ajax they played, and they absolutely blew Ajax away in terms of their pressing. And that was a match that Sadio Mane played in, and a few other really well known players played in, and and that's when you really started to take notice. Beyond what you'd done previously, all of a sudden, here was a coach who, for him, counter-pressing isn't a singular tactical concept, it's a game model. He, he, he likes his teams to be aggressive all the time, so pressing all the time, winning the ball back close to opposition goal, creating goal-scoring opportunities. When you have the ball, first option is to look vertical. You're always looking for the vertical pass to move the ball forward. You don't play, don't play sideways, don't play back, play forward. I think with all of the young attacking talent that PSV have, I think that they're really going to thrive under that from Roger Schmidt. They think that we're, we're going to see a lot of goals, we're going to see a lot of shots, we're going to see a lot of attacking football. There will be elements of which that expose defensively, and that's somewhere that the defensive players will then have to develop because you have to deal with that threat. Because if you can break the initial press from a Schmidt team, then you have an opportunity to create something yourself. So... I think that PSV games, when they're shown, whatever they're shown on TV, where you are, or if you're able to pick up the highlights somewhere, will be something that's definitely worth watching, not just for the young players, but for the absolute commitment to aggressive football that we'll see. 
Excellent. I mean, that is the best of the rest. We are out of time, unfortunately, but hopefully you're more clued up about the four players from Belgium, Denmark and the Netherlands um, than you were an hour ago. Uh, Lee, thank you an awful lot for, for giving us your time today. I know you keep a very occupied schedule. Um, and I mean, would you just like to tell people where they can see your work, find your books and, and anything you're working on at the moment? Yeah, the books are on sale everywhere, so you can get them on, on Amazon, on Book Depository online, or you can get them in any good bookstores. Most of my work now, unfortunately, I can't actually remember the last time that I wrote anything in Total Football Analysis. A lot of my work now is kind of behind the scenes a little bit. But you can still get me on at FM Analysis. I'm always happy to chat. My DMs are open. Feel free to drop me a message if you need anything. Perfect. Right, well, that's all from us. Uh, I've been Joe Donoghue, and this has been the Scouted Football Podcast with Lee Scott. Um, thank you for tuning in. Bye for now.